It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, July 22nd, 2021. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Glad to have you here every day, Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Thank you for tuning in live as we air. Many ways to listen live at GuyBensonShow.com and elsewhere. Or you can also get the podcast a little bit later on if you miss any of it as it airs. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast as well. FoxNewsPodcast.com or all sorts of different avenues where you can get your podcast. No charge to you on demand every single day. Here's the roadmap for today's show. Chad Pergram, top correspondent for Capitol Hill here at Fox News, he will join us in mere moments talking about some of the math, as he always likes to discuss, involving two major pieces of legislation which we will get to here in just a second. Where do things stand? What's the strategy at play for both of the major parties right now? Chad will break it down. In the next hour, U.S. Senator, actually it'll be still this hour as a matter of fact, U.S. Senator Roger Marshall, Republican of Kansas, he's a medical doctor. He's going to be here, part of a team today of Republican members of Congress who are medical doctors urging people to get vaccinated. They held a press conference. We'll ask him about that. Later on in the program, Will Kane is going to drop by. That will be in our next hour. Top of the next hour, in fact. Will Kane is the co-host of Fox & Friends Weekend. We often like to talk about sports, and we will do so a little bit today. There's also a political tie-in. Are conservatives, or at least growing numbers of conservatives, actually rooting against Team USA when it comes to, for example, the women's soccer team and some of their political statements? I see people celebrating that they lost to Sweden 3 to nothing after taking a knee, and we did comment on that yesterday. I wasn't terribly broken up over the loss. I do get pretty exhausted with the politics from these athletes. I mean, they have a right to say what they want, but it's not exactly unifying. But what about rooting against Team USA? I think that's a little bit interesting. We'll talk to Will Kane about that, plus rumors that the big, major members, Texas and Oklahoma, of the Big 12 Conference, with all due respect to the other schools, they might be headed for the exits. They're looking at the SEC. That's interesting. Then finally, in our last hour, the happy hour, 5.05 Eastern Time, Congressman Dan Crenshaw, Republican of Texas, will be our guest. So a lot to get to. Let's start with a Fox News alert and some stats. The case count in the United States, collectively, 34.2 million. That's the number of confirmed COVID cases in the United States. It is a very low ball estimate. Those cases are growing in certain places. Those who are vaccinated don't really have to worry about it. Those who are not vaccinated, it's actually looking like some of those locations and states, their vaccine rates are starting to increase. People are worried enough about the Delta variant and its contagiousness that more people are starting to get vaxxed in those places, which is good. We are very pro-vaccine here on COVID-19. You know that. The death toll, and this is part of the reason why, 
the death toll, 609,508 Americans have died from this awful virus against which the vaccines protect you, certainly from severe illness or death. And if only we had the vaccines sooner, a lot of that death could have been prevented, but the vaccines were produced and developed at record speed, thanks to the Trump administration, I will always point out. The Dow is up 64 points, currently trading at 34,862. We'll monitor that here over the next hour or so. I want to talk as we begin, even though we're doing the show today and also now tomorrow from Indianapolis, my mind drifts back to D.C. and some of the political fights on Capitol Hill. And we talked a little bit yesterday about this. We'll talk more about it coming up with Senator Marshall in a little while. But we had Mike Braun here, U.S. Senator from Indiana. He was on the show yesterday talking about this spending and the various proposals that the Democrats have put forward. And yesterday afternoon, the Senate had a vote that Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader, the majority leader, had insisted on. In fact, Schumer had set up two different deadlines. One was on the bipartisan infrastructure framework, which some people are calling BIF for short. That was one. And Schumer was saying, we're going to have a vote to get onto that bill and begin debating that bill, and it's going to happen on Wednesday. And if the Republicans block it, then we're going to say that they're not serious about bipartisanship. And I guess he thought that that tactic could divide the Republicans, and he thought wrong, big time. And I will return to that point in just a moment. But the other deadline that Schumer had was for his own part to strike a meaningful deal and bargain on the other big piece, much bigger piece of this, $3.5 trillion in spending through reconciliation is the term, which has to be budget-related, but it allows a simple majority passage threshold in both houses of Congress. And because the Democrats barely control both houses of Congress for now, they have the ability to use reconciliation. They did so on, new, on nearly $2 trillion on so-called COVID relief shortly after Joe Biden was sworn in. We all remember that. Not a single Republican vote because it was packed with waste. Now they want to do it even bigger, $3.5 trillion. They have no way to pay for all of that, but they're going to pretend that they do. And Schumer was saying, okay, we're also going to have this deadline this week for a Democrats-only deal. And then the deadline came and went. And Bernie Sanders, who chairs the budget committee, said, well, maybe we'll get this all on the same page in August. So that has slipped by as well. So I don't really think it was a, a terribly impressive day yesterday for Chuck Schumer and his leadership and his tactics. Maybe he's got some strategic goals in mind that we're unaware of. Maybe this is all part of some grand scheme that he's got plotted. Maybe. I'm not so sure about that, because any effort to divide and conquer with the Republicans yesterday just failed totally and completely. Every single Republican voted against what's called a cloture vote, which is the first round of a potential filibuster. So the Republicans, quote unquote, filibustered the bipartisan infrastructure framework. Schumer was insisting, we want to get on it, we're going to start debating it, let's move that bill, and every single Republican voted no, including the Republicans who were heavily involved in the negotiations and have basically endorsed the deal. Now, the thing is, Schumer made that decision extremely easy for them. Extremely easy. 
with this stupid, premature, totally arbitrary deadline. And they were warning him, no, by Wednesday, we're not going to be done. We're still negotiating. We're not going to move forward on a bill that doesn't exist yet. But Schumer insisted on it. So they held the vote, and they didn't even come close. They didn't come within 10 votes of getting to 60, which is what they needed. Not a single Republican jumped ship. There was not one single defection. And as I said last night on Special Report, I was on the panel with Brett Baer, it was the easiest thing that Republicans could have done. It was a no-brainer. Schumer made it so easy for them. As cocaine Mitch McConnell said, the Republican leader, quote, no bipartisan agreement, no text, nothing for the CBO to evaluate, and certainly nothing on which to vote. Not yet. All of that's true. Schumer wanted them to vote to advance a bill that doesn't exist. So all 50 Republicans in the Senate said, no, pound sand, we're not doing that. They're getting close. The negotiations continue. And this brings us to the second piece of it. The reconciliation bill. Now, it's basically a fait accompli. It's a foregone conclusion. No Republicans are going to go along with this 3.5 or whatever the number ends up being. Whether it's you know 2.8, 3.1, 3.5 trillion. It's almost like monopoly money, except it's real. It affects inflation, for example. It affects in a huge way the national debt. It's so reckless. It's totally unsustainable, but they want to do it. They've got this moment in time, they've got this power, and they want to jam through a huge amount, not just of the money being spent, but a reimagining of the economy and the country to bring it more and more left-wing, more and more so-called progressive, closer and closer to socialism. That's the reality. So not a single Republican is going to sign on to that. The spending is crazy. They don't have pay-fors. They want to raise taxes. Not a single Republican is going to agree to it. However, a lot of Republicans are actively involved in the conversations around BIF, right, the bipartisan infrastructure piece. And we've talked about it. We've had members who are fairly supportive of it here on the show. I'm fairly supportive of it in isolation. If this were a standalone bill without any sort of linkage to other stuff, I think it's a relatively good bill considering that Democrats, or it's not even a bill yet, but a proposal or a package, considering that Democrats run everything, you could do a lot worse. And it's actual real infrastructure, unlike the fake definition of infrastructure that the Democrats have been peddling. But when you hear Nancy Pelosi in cut 13 say this, it becomes much more complicated. So in any event, uh, as I mentioned, we are here to get the job done. Uh, we cannot respond to some of the legislation until the Senate acts. As I said, we will not take up the infrastructure bill until the Senate passes the reconciliation bill. Right, so she's doubling down on this. She's doubling down on this hostage taking, as they say, where they're not going to even consider the bipartisan bill until 3.5 roughly trillion dollars are jammed through with Democrat-only votes. That's her demand, her sequencing. You add it all up, it's more than $4 trillion in spending. It is so irresponsible. I think Republican senators, even who might like this bill on infrastructure that they've helped negotiate, they have to think long and hard about whether they want to sign up for this scheme and play any part in this whole charade. Even setting aside the merits 
of the infrastructure bill, which overall I support, the way they're trying to jam this all through and make one a condition of the other, and you look at the bigger picture, I think Republicans really need to think about this and perhaps say, you know what, no, we don't want any of our fingerprints on any of this because you're being so reckless. And it's so cynical, the partisanship that's at play here. And that's Pelosi's, that's her rule. She just laid it down again. There seems to be no budging from that. So what does that mean practically in terms of the timeline moving forward, the strategy from both parties? We will ask Chad Pergram. He joins us here on The Guy Benson Show next. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show in Indianapolis. Let's go to Capitol Hill now and check in with Chad Pergram, Fox News congressional correspondent. And Chad, I just teed this conversation up with my opening monologue, talking about the vote yesterday on infrastructure didn't go well from Chuck Schumer's perspective. And now the question sort of becomes timeline sequencing, and of course, as you always say, the math. Where do things stand, both on infrastructure and then clearly relatedly, as Pelosi reiterated yet again, this huge number, $3.5 trillion or that ballpark, of a reconciliation bill, which the Democrats seem to say are linked, period, end of story. Well, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi indicated uh, today that uh, she would uh, wait for the Senate to consider both the bipartisan infrastructure deal plus the larger partisan Democratic $3.5 trillion deal until they move those over from the Senate. She's not going to touch it. Now, you say that things went badly for Chuck Schumer on this the other day. I might quibble with that point respectfully because what Chuck Schumer was trying to do was he knows that they're going to probably try to pass this big $3.5 trillion bill on their own. And he's confident they can get all Democrats to stick together and give, from the Democratic perspective, Joe Biden a big win. What he was doing was engineering a roll call vote and saying, look, these are Republicans who aren't willing to vote in a bipartisan fashion, even though they're working purportedly on a bipartisan bill. Now, we think that bill is going to be done sometime over the weekend, maybe early next week, and they will probably re-vote that. But what he has done is he has documented a vote where those senators were against it. And they can weaponize that against certain senators as you go into the 2022 election. And you see these ads where they run the thing at the bottom of the screen. That's what that roll call vote was about. It was also a message to his caucus to say, we are willing to work in a bipartisan fashion, but if they're not, we have to do this on our own. And we might combine some of those things from the bipartisan bill into our larger partisan $3.5 trillion bill. But, you know, so there's a lot of messaging that was going on there, a lot of uh, multi-level chess, as you say. Yeah, you asked I would about just, sequ- sequencing. Just, just before we, we really get to don't that. know how this is 
going to go down. We don't before, still. Before we get to that, uh, Chad, because your point is well taken, and I'm not saying that Schumer didn't know that it was going to fail. I think, of course, he knew it was going to fail. And the point that you make and what his calculus may have been, uh, fair enough. I just think it's still a miscalculation because I, I think a vote on cloture to get onto a bill that even the Republican potential supporters say doesn't exist yet, I'm just not really sure it has the potency politically that maybe Schumer is hoping that it will. I don't think it sends the message to people like Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema that Republicans have absolutely no interest whatsoever in bipartisanship because they've been working in an active working group, including right now, to hammer out a bipartisan deal with multiple Republicans on board. So, I mean, I, I, he was trying to do messaging. There's no question about that. I just don't know that it was terribly effective in the short or the long term. You've made the case for probably the best case that could be made for what he was trying to accomplish. I'm just skeptical that it was effective. That, that was my point. Right. As for sequencing, this is where it gets complicated because in, in my opening monologue, I asked Republicans, even the Republicans who are potentially on board for so-called BIF, the bipartisan deal on infrastructure, the Rob Portmans, the Mitt Romneys of the world. If Pelosi continues to say, we are not even going to consider the bipartisan piece of this until we have already voted on and passed the huge partisan component of it with a number that is just astronomically high, way beyond, for example, what Manchin said he would be in favor of. One to two trillion was his number. If that's the sequence that she's insisting on as the Speaker of the House, I'm not sure why some of those Republicans would be incentivized to continue to play nice and pursue a bipartisan approach here if the end result is going to be well over $4 trillion of spending one way or another. That's that I'm very eager to see if the the Republicans who are part of this working group are going to remain on board or if the other piece of this is such a poisonous pill that they peel away. Well, some of it's because Republicans want to do and know it is in their interest politically to do good old fashioned bricks, steel, girders, infrastructure. Right. And that's mostly what this bipartisan bill is about. And so if they push back from the table, that could be a bad thing for them. Now, you know, I talked to Rob Portman, the Republican senator from Ohio, just a few minutes ago. The president was in Ohio at the College of Mount St. Joseph on the west side of Cincinnati. And just about three miles from where he spoke is something called the Brent Spence Bridge, named after a congressman from Kentucky, because that runs across the Ohio River. And that is one of the worst bridges in the in the country. And, and the president said, we got to fix your bridge. And what he really meant was we got to replace your bridge. I asked Portman about this, saying, you know, you know, what about these bridges? And he said, you know, we create this traffic problem in Cincinnati, Ohio, daily because of that bridge and what it does in terms of the carbon. Yeah, no, and the no, air. there's there's a lot of bipartisan reasons to get that done. It's that other massive component that I think. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share at least from my perspective, is pretty toxic. We'll see how it plays out. It's the math. It's the timing. 
It's Chad Program on The Guy Benson Show. Back after this. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. GuyBensonShow.com. Joining me now here on the program is United States Senator and Medical Doctor Roger Marshall of Kansas. And, Senator, it's good to have you back here. Yeah, Guy, happy Thursday afternoon, one of my favorite days of the week. I would agree. We call it Friday Eve here on the show for good reason. There you go. He's starting getting close to those Friday vibes. I want to talk to you about a press conference that you were involved with earlier today on Capitol Hill involving vaccines and COVID. But before we get to that subject, I just spent the first half hour on this show talking in my monologue and then also chatting with Chad Pergram, our colleague up on the Hill The vote that happened yesterday, sort of this messaging vote from Senator Schumer and the Democrats on infrastructure, every single Republican stuck together. None of them peeled away on the bipartisan infrastructure package. And part of the reason that you guys were so united was there was no bill, nothing to actually get onto. It was a non-existent bill that's still theoretical. It's being worked on. And Republicans all got together and said, no, of course, we're not going to advance something that doesn't yet exist. So that was a party-line vote in the Senate yesterday. Speaker Pelosi today, once again, doubling, tripling down on this idea that over in the House, of course, controlled by the Democrats, they're not going to touch anything that might pass out of the Senate on a bipartisan basis on infrastructure until the Democrats jam through three, $3.5 trillion of spending on their own through reconciliation. So that's a lot of sort of moving parts to this. <laughs> From your perspective, you voted, of course, with all the Republicans, no, not to advance a non-existent bill yesterday. What do you, first of all, what were part of your reasons behind that vote, if I haven't already expressed them? And then when you start to think about the broader picture and in the context of both of these dual tracks, does it make sense, even if you're open to the bipartisan infrastructure bill and think it's pretty good. And I find it actually decent, all things considered. Does it make sense for Republicans to reward what the Democrats are doing with this insane go-it-alone reconciliation strategy to then turn around and reward them with a bipartisan infrastructure win, so to speak, when the dollar amount here is so astronomically high? Well, Guy, that's a pretty complex question. Uh, certainly, Speaker Pelosi wants us to fail. She wants the bipartisan effort to fail. The White House wants the bipartisan effort to fail. But I'm telling you, this is what I believe, after having talked to, to Kirsten Gillibrand and to Joe Manchin, that if we don't do a bipartisan infrastructure plan, that the final price will be much higher in their, in their final infrastructure bill, really, you know, their, their socialism bill, they, they will jam a bigger number. So I think we give Kirsten and Joe more gunpowder if we pass a common-sense, traditional infrastructure plan, which, frankly, I think America needs. And I'm really impressed with this plan that I've just seen for the first time about two hours ago. We had a great lunch there at the Republican caucus, and I'm really impressed here. They're not raising our taxes any. It's paid for. It is all classic traditional infrastructure. So this is the first time I've been encouraged. And that being said, I still think the White House and Nancy Pelosi will find a way to tube this plan. 
Okay, so that's actually very interesting coming out of this Republican luncheon because what you just described, lack of tax increases, for example, and fully paid for and real hard infrastructure, the traditional definition, those are the reasons why I have not been attacking the infrastructure negotiations. I think all things considered, it's pretty good. Is it perfect? No. Is it pretty good? Yes. That's been my take on it so far. And I guess I understand the point for Mansion and Cinema. If they're going to stand up against more hardcore leftists in the party, if there's a bipartisan deal, they might be able to pare back the reconciliation package on the Democrat side, you know, the exclusively Democrats effort. They might be able to pare it back a little bit. I just wonder the case that you just made about how it would be the worst of all worlds if you leave all of it up to the Democrats and the Republicans you know, say, no fingerprints, we don't want anything to do with any of this, good luck. You're saying it'll be a worse bill with a much higher overall combined uh, you know, price tag. Is that the prevailing sense that you get from your Republican colleagues? Because it seems like there's a lot of pressure among conservatives now saying, this is a scheme, don't go along with it. What is your impression, having been in that lunch and having now spoken to some of your colleagues, do the Republicans, are there enough votes there on the Republican side to get to 60 if this bill solidifies and is roughly what you believe it will be? Will there be enough Republican support to get it across the finish line, at least in the Senate? I, I think there's a good chance of that. But but certainly, uh, you know, we're all waiting for final text. We're waiting for some of the, the details that, like you said, there's some things here we don't like. They're spending a lot of money on public transit, and uh, it looks like on on freight and passenger rail, $66 billion I'm seeing for that, $48 billion for public transit. Uh, but I think we, we still talk. No one left the meeting mad. I think we're all trying to, to come away with a reasonable, affordable, traditional infrastructure plan. So I think it's feasible. And, and maybe I'd make one last point here. If there's no traditional infrastructure in the Democrats' $3.5 trillion plan, if there's no goodies in there, no sugar, I think there's, there's a, you know, a chance we can pull Kirsten and, and Joe Manchin away from them as well and even keep that from happening. But there's no way we can – Or pull at least reduce the number. We, I, I, I yeah, think they're yeah, going to end up voting you along. You, yeah, they're going to end up voting with the party. They're going to pass something. It's going to be a lot of money. Maybe that number comes down from 3.5 you got it. You know, to, to something a little bit less insane – but it's still, I mean, we're talking about insane numbers overall, yeah. and, and there are not pay-fors in the Democrat-only bill. They are talking about increasing taxes and massively expanding the government. And I, like the arg- I go back and forth on this because the arguments that you're making, uh, they hold water. They make sense. The, the other side of me just says if they're, gonna, if they're intent on four-plus trillion dollars of spending – Giving them any Republican votes on any of it, even though it might be appealing to you know bring home some bacon, I just don't know if it's worth it. Let's see how it plays out and what each of the bills actually looks like when they are presented, and, and we don't have either of them yet. Senator, let's shift to your role as a medical doctor, because I mentioned you were a participant in a press conference today. It was mostly Republican doctors, you know, members on the Hill who are also medical doctors, someone who was also there is the GOP whip in the House, Steve Scalise. He's not a doctor, but he made some headlines this week getting his first vaccine shot. Finally, he said he hadn't done it. He was holding off. Now he feels like the time was right. He's fully confident. Here's part of what he said earlier today in Cut 11. With the Delta variant, I felt 
I wanted that extra level of uh, protection. I would encourage people to get the vaccine. I have high confidence in it. I got it myself. All right, so that's Scalise, and he's flanked, if you watch the video, by a number of you guys who are medical doctors who are now serving in Congress. You're one of them. You've done a PSA in the past urging people to get vaccinated. What's your message? Because obviously the message that has been attempted, it's gotten through to a lot of people. Many people have move forward and they've gotten their vaccinations in your state though kansas the last number that i saw 43 44 percent of the population is fully vaccinated there are a lot of people still either totally opposed to it and i feel like there are some folks who will never be convinced but there are some persuadable hesitant people who are out there a lot of them lean to the right not all of them what's your message to them and how does, if, if it does, how does the Delta variant play into, in your mind, the urgency of, let's say, a new wave of vaccinations? Yeah, you know, I think this Delta variant gives a reason to, uh, for a person to take pause and, and do some introspection and say, hey, maybe I should go talk to my doctor about this. And what, what, what I would say is I respect your your opinion that, that, that you, don't ha- you haven't had the vaccination yet. So we need to respect people and not talk down to them. And it just feels like out of the White House, we get this condescending attitude, which just really turns people off. So what, what I'm encouraging people to do is uh, go talk to their doctor and ask for the antibody test, first of all. So half of the people that have not been vaccinated have natural immunity. Natural immunity is at least as good as having had both vaccinations before. And I, I think that then that's a great time for your doctor to say, look, uh, you do have antibodies, you're good to go. Quit worrying about this. Or if you don't have antibodies, then I think it's a great chance for the doctor to say, uh, look, I, I know your medical record. And based upon that and based upon what we know about this vaccine, I, I may or may not recommend it for you. Uh, you know, for my 83-year-old parents, there was no question that they needed. I'm so happy they've got it. I got the vaccine. But I've got a 21-year-old son that's had the virus. He has the antibodies. And no one has convinced me that there's any benefit to adding a vaccine on top of it. So don't you think a little common sense is good? Uh, the, the Delta, I think this uptick we're seeing is just, it's the reason to say, you know, this is not over. Please, one more time, let's consider what to do here. And this is a personal choice between you and, and your doctor. And you are a doctor in addition to a U.S. senator. So I can imagine, let's say you're back home, you're back in Kansas, and there are people who might come up to you, constituents, patients, whomever, saying, hey, senator, you know, doctor, I'm not so sure about this for these reasons. What are some of the reasons that you're encountering on a regular basis from people who aren't sold on the vaccine? And how do you respond to those challenges or those questions? Yeah, you know, I think the you know, the first thing they'll say, you know, we're not convinced it's safe. You know, this is just out under emergency use authorization. And 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 frankly, we may not know for five or ten years, especially for for children that are still growing. Uh, there's this issue out there for uh, regarding fertility. And I would tell them, look, I'm not aware of any type of study that would show that there's a problem with this drug uh, causing fertility but, or this vaccine, but I sure respect where you're coming from. I think that's, that's the major one that I, that I hear over and over. And, and really, though, behind And by the that, way, just, just to jump yeah. in, we had Dr. Manny Alvarez, our Fox News colleague. He's an OBGYN, a, a very prominent one in yeah. the New York area. This is his wheelhouse. This is his area of expertise. And he gave a very strong answer earlier this week on the fertility issue, saying it is not 
a threat. The vaccine is not a threat to, for, for, to fertility whatsoever. And he gave a pretty detailed response why. But I think that's I think answering the questions in, in a proactive way with specificity yeah. and, and marshalling actual information is way yeah. better than just sort of waving this stuff off as, as weird stuff yeah. that that shouldn't even be discussed or asked. You got it. You got it. You need to respect the you know the patient in this case. You know, respect the person where they're coming from. Uh, it, you know, the, the big other group of people just feel like this constant barrage on their God-given constitutional rights, and they see their freedom of speech uh, being violated by censoring, and then they see the White House double down on it, and it just makes them flinch. Uh, you know, almost just reverse psychology is, is what's going on right now. Uh, but I think it takes patience and listening. And, and, and a whole lot of listening and not, not as much talking is what I'd be advising medical students how to handle this conversation. <laughs> what do you make about this discussion on masks? Because we're having the mask conversation again, including for vaccinated people. And to me, what, what frustrates me is the idea that we would be crafting any public policy in such a way that would punish people for doing, in my mind, the right thing getting the vaccine, they're inoculated, they're immunized, they have virtually zero chance of serious illness or death because they've gotten the vaccine. Why would we require people like that to limit their mobility or have to wear a mask all over the place when they've already checked the box in the way that they've been asked to do? That is something that I think really accomplishes almost nothing but could in fact really anger and alienate a lot of people, including some of those still unvaccinated people who who see that and they feel like they're getting a message from the policymakers that maybe the vaccines aren't that effective. Maybe they don't really believe it if this is what they're going to require vaccinated people to do. I know some people think that fear is overblown. I'm not sure it is. No, no, Guy, you nailed it. This is amazing. You actually have been listening to people, uh, even the infrastructure stuff. You nailed it uh, as well. But you're right. This is another reason people would tell me they won't get the vaccine. Is they, is they would say, look, they're going to make us get a, a, a vaccine pass. They're going to make us wear a mask anyway. We're tired of being controlled. But, but wearing a mask now is nonsense. Uh, I just want to emphasize that over two-thirds of adults – and, and 90% of senior citizens will have had both vaccines here in the next couple of weeks. Half of the people remaining have had the virus already. Natural immunity is as good, if not better, than vaccine immunity, right? So if that group of people, if, if you've had the vaccine or you've had the virus, there's no sense at all to wear masks. And even just dropping down to the kids, no one's convinced me yet that the benefits outweigh the risk of wearing masks when it comes to children, especially if half the children have already had the virus. Look, as far as we know, no child under the age of 18 has died from COVID unless they had underlying medical conditions. So, yes, a child with leukemia, yes, they need to wear a mask. And frankly, they shouldn't be out in the in the public right now. Right. Not even a mask is going to protect them uh, to my satisfaction. So I I think the uh, mask uh, is has been way overblown. And and I just don't see the science. On the other hand, we know that masks hurts the psychology of kids and and their social development as well. So I, I think the mask stuff is just overreaction. We can't be having people in Washington, D.C., or even the governor's office. When what is going on in the big city in Kansas and Wichita or, or Kansas City is so different than 
rural, rural Kansas, uh, much of Kansas, the northwest corner. I talked to lots of hospitals, have not admitted a patient to the hospital with COVID since February. So we need to let the local school boards, local folks have some control here. Dr. Marshall, we appreciate all of this. Roger Marshall is a U.S. senator from Kansas. He's a medical doctor. And it sounds like your bottom line is the vaccines are safe. The vaccines are effective for people who aren't sure yet. Go talk to your doctor, get that antibody test, and then have that conversation one-on-one. The Delta variant is the same as regular COVID, if you will, except it's more contagious. That's why we're seeing these case spikes. And the more we can decouple cases from deaths, which is what the vaccine achieves, that's obviously the outcome that everyone should be rooting for one way or another. Talk to your doctor, have that conversation, and don't close your mind to it. And if you're on the other side of this issue and you're a big vaccine person like I am, don't condescend and assume that you know what's best for other people because everyone's circumstances might be a little bit different. And that's best discussed between them and their doctor, including perhaps Dr. Roger Marshall, U.S. Senator from Kansas. (laughs) We so appreciate your time, Senator, and we look forward to talking again. Thanks, Guy. Great show. Appreciate it. And with that, we will step aside very briefly. Come right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Energetic, informed, fast-paced, Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Back on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. Still to come, Will Kane. Kicking off our next hour. Looking forward to that conversation with the Fox and Friends weekend co-host. Also, the following hour, we'll bring Congressman Dan Crenshaw of Texas to the program. And we will have a good conversation, I'm sure, with him. In the meantime, one thing that drove me crazy during the Trump years was how certain people who hated the guy would never admit anything that he did right. Even if they kind of almost secretly liked it, they just wouldn't say it because of this personal animus and this like hardcore partisanship. I don't want to do the same thing. I didn't do that to him. I don't want to do it with the current president either. So when Biden does certain things that I like, I'll mention it. For example, on CNN last night, he shot down the idea of blowing up the legislative filibuster, saying it would chaos and and bad outcomes in Congress, that is good. That is not what the left wing wants to hear. So I'm glad that he said it. His administration also announced sanctions against officials in Cuba who have been crushing this rebellion among the people there who want their freedom. Sanctions against communists are good things. So, you know, golf clap for both of those from President Biden. Another hour on The Guy Benson Show is coming up. You don't want to go anywhere. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. It's time now for a new hour on The Guy Benson Show. Very glad to have you all on board every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com, any ways to listen live. And the podcast is free on demand each and every day, including on the weekends, Bonus Benson. 
GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you might get your free podcasts. Fox News alert as we kick off this middle hour. The Dow closes the day up 25 points, ending at 34,823. With us now is Will Kane, co-host of Fox & Friends Weekend, also host of the Will Kane Podcast. Will, it is great to talk to you as always. What's up, guy? Well, I am sitting in my hotel room in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I am looking directly out the window at the headquarters of the NCAA. It's actually a very cool-looking building. And I want to talk with you about sports and politics, it's often the case, uh, in this segment. Let's start with just pure sports, just for the moment. We're both college sports fans, college football fans. I was delighted to discover that I'm staying in the official hotel of Big Ten Media Day, which is happening right now. So I might stalk Northwestern's Pat Fitzgerald later tonight. I'll be scouring the bar to see if he's around. You're a Big 12 guy. You're a big Texas Longhorns fan, if I recall correctly. But I would imagine you've heard all these rumors because we've already seen some conference realignment over the last decade or so, in particular the last couple of years, this this notion that seems to be gaining steam that the University of Texas at Austin and the Longhorns and their arch-rival, Oklahoma University, both of the Big 12 Conference for now, there are at least talks or something is afoot where they might, might join the SEC, which is a huge powerhouse conference in mostly the southeastern part of the country. As a Texas fan, what do you make of that? Would you put much stock into it? And at that point, I mean, my goodness, it would it'd be hard to argue that the SEC was anything other than a s ridiculous super conference. I definitely put stock in it. I think the fact that these rumors have not been shot down and happen to make so much sense suggests this is a very real prospect that Texas and OU could join the SEC. As to whether or not I like it, Guy, I'm torn I really am a traditionalist. I'm sure to some extent, as are you, that's what yep. leads one to having a conservative ideological bent in many ways, if not doctrinaire, as an instinct. And so I like the way it has always been. And football in Texas has been one where we view ourselves, perhaps inaccurately, as the center of the universe. I grew up with the Southwest Conference, Baylor, TCU, SMU, Texas, Texas Tech, Texas A&M, and everybody has a cousin or a brother or sister that went to one of those schools. And it was fun on Saturdays and then on into the week to argue with each other, see who had which pendant up in their bedroom. And it felt insular, but but like a sibling rivalry with every single school. And I don't feel really good about trading in whatever kind of rivalry may exist with Texas Tech, for one with Mississippi State. We just don't have Although, that history. just to jump in here, because I think what you're saying uh, resonates with me to a certain extent, and I do find it somewhat entertaining that it's possible that the University of Texas in your lifetime could shift from the Southwest Conference to the Southeastern Conference, having not moved geographically at all, <laughs> same exact place, <laughs> same city of Austin, sort of directionally challenged. But look, Northwestern, we're founding members of the Big Tens. I mean, we're not going anywhere, but there's there's got to be some appeal 
of the elite level of the SEC. And I'm, now I'm sort of thinking this through. You talked about Mississippi State. Okay, fine. There's not an existing rivalry there. There's the old rivalry with Missouri, which used to be in the Big 12. There's, of course, the old rivalry with Texas A&M, which is now in the SEC. And I can't really find it hard to envision rivalries developing pretty damn fast with some of these other big schools, big-name schools, if it were to happen. I'm not saying I'm rooting for it at all. I think the Big 12 would then be a shell of itself. The SEC, like rich getting richer type thing. But I don't know. The fact, the point that you made, the fact that people have not come out you know, uh, fully denying, that hasn't happened. So... I'm scratching my chin here saying, okay, if this is real, when would that happen? How many teams would that be? Six, 16 mm-hmm. in the 16. SEC? 15, something like a huge conference. Mm-hmm. That's, that's wild. And thus I'm torn. Because on the other hand, while I'm instinctually against it, it makes entirely too much sense. And forget whether or not it makes sense. It's probably inevitable. It's fun. It's exciting. I'm going to do it on the Will Kane podcast where I realign the SEC into either two eight-team conferences or four four-team conferences. Yeah, they're talking about the four pods. That's four potential pods, and have, uh, good luck trying to draw some geographic boundaries around <laughs> that. But it feels inevitable, Guy. This super conference thing feels somewhat inevitable, and if you don't get on the train, you're, you're at risk of being left behind. I remember when the S Southwest Conference became the Big 12, and at that time, TCU, SMU, Houston got left in the wilderness, and many of them have been floating around ever since, Mountain West, AAC, whatever it may be, Conference USA. And although it's Texas and OU, and you're probably never at risk of fully being left behind it feels like this is inevitability and if that's the case there's no better place to join than the sec and one final point to your point i can envision very easily a rivalry developing with say lsu and texas oh i mean obviously obviously right and so i'm i'm not i'm an sec hater i root against the sec with a few minor exceptions for example if they're playing notre dame or if my friend mary Catherine ham's Bulldogs are playing, Georgia Bulldogs. There are multiple Bulldogs in the conference. I just want to warn you, if you guys join the SEC, you are joining a conference that has multiple Tigers and multiple <laughs> Bulldogs. I think there's three Tigers. There Missouri, might be three Bulldogs. Missouri, and LSU, Missouri Tig- and Auburn. Yeah, and Auburn. Yep. So you've yep. got three Tigers in the same damn although, conference. Although, let's call it two and a half because Auburn claims two different mascots, War Eagle and Tigers. Yes, so yes they only get half is, credit. War Eagle, but they are the Auburn Tigers, right? That yes. is the name of the team. And then you've got the uh, Georgia Bulldogs, Mississippi mm-hmm. State Bulldogs. Is there a third Bulldog, or am I making that up? There no, might I don't be. Think so, I but don't this think is so. this is this is uh, absurd. So th- you know, buyer beware. If you're going to join this Southeastern Conference, <laughs> I'm a Big Ten guy, so of course I have to hate even in, in advance, hypothetically. Uh, well. Now let's shift a little bit to sports plus politics. And this isn't necessarily politics, but everything COVID has a political angle now. Did you see this report about the NFL and what they've done? It's not even a report. They put out uh, new guidance today. I'm just going to read. This is a tweet from a reporter at the NFL Network. Quote, the NFL just informed clubs that if a game cannot be rescheduled, during the 18-week season in 2021 due to a COVID outbreak among unvaccinated players, the team with the outbreak will forfeit the game, will be credited with a loss for playoff seating. Massive implications. And, I mean, I read that, and then I read it again. Like, okay, this is the NFL getting pretty serious, not just on COVID, but on the vaccine as well. When you start talking about 
uh, forfeit losses with playoff implications, that's going to get a lot of attention from head coaches, medical staffs, general managers, etc. Yes, and it leaves open the question that Jalen Ramsey, who's a cornerback for the Los Angeles Rams, asked today. Essentially, what happens if a vaccinated player gets diagnosed with COVID? What happens if mm-hmm. you have an outbreak of COVID among vaccinated players? Do you have the right, same Like the type Texas of Democrats, for example. Exactly. Right? Like in mild cases, but they're, they're technical positive cases. How does that get adjudicated? Right. Is it the same type of punitive forfeit repercussions if your vaccinated players come down? With COVID, look, at some point, we're going to have to ask ourselves, we have to acknowledge two things at the same time, Guy. I'd be curious where you are on this. The vaccine clearly is perhaps to some extent still allowing what we're calling breakthrough diagnosis or breakthrough infections, but reducing the severity of the disease. But yet there are people, but yet still there are people who are concerned, reserved, hesitant to get the virus. And at some point, we're just going to have to move forward with society and trust that people make the decisions for themselves that they find appropriate. And if they suffer the consequences, that's what happens in a free society. But we have to acknowledge that the vaccine is protecting everyone else from those consequences that that free person chose. So why do we, A, Hector, and punish everyone for a decision at this point you would have to assume they're very well aware of the cost-benefit analysis. Yeah, I mean, that's generally where I am. I did see a story that there are now nursing home outbreaks again because there are unvaccinated nursing home workers. And that's an area where I'm like, hell, if, you're, if you run a nursing home, I have no problem with a vaccine requirement. If you're going to be, if you're going to be interfacing with the most vulnerable people, whether yeah. you're a hospital worker or a nursing home worker, and you are literally every day face-to-face with elderly people or people with serious other medical conditions, I have no problem And if you're an employer mandating the vaccine there. I really don't. Uh, it's not the government doing it. Uh, to me, that, that's kind of a no-brainer. NFL football, I mean, these are, for the most part, like peak performance, prime-of-their-life guys. So I'm not quite sure it's the same medical imperative. Look, the league can do what it wants. They're clearly trying to uh, leverage this to get more vaccinations done. Actually, the SEC is doing the same thing. SEC is also requiring, I think, a threshold of vaccination in order to compete in the SEC this season. I saw their commissioner was at least talking about doing that. So you're starting to see separate institutions, not necessarily the government, although in the SEC, almost all those schools are state schools. It's just sort of interesting to see how different pockets of society are adjusting moving forward. And I'm not necessarily convinced there's like a perfectly right or perfectly wrong way to do it, but it's certainly an interesting conversation. And for the NFL to come in the way that they have, given that they're, you know, their cultural clout, it's certainly worth talking about. I mean, it's definitely a story. Yeah, most definitely. And I'm sure that's going to be the mechanism for punishment and enforcement. It's going to be through private businesses. The United States populace is not going to tolerate some type of government mandate. So it's going to be an incentive-based structure that you have to have a vaccine to go back to work, or I hope this is not the case, but to private establishments or... How about this, Guy? Do you feel comfortable with this prediction? We will be having a debate 
within one month about whether or not children should have to get the vaccine to return to school. And within two to three months, we'll be having a a debate of whether or not vaccine passports are appropriate. And the reason I feel comfortable with those predictions is because every step of the way, this has been politicized. And there has been a next step. I think it's plausible. I think both are plausible. There's a constant next step search to find Mm -hmm. the place on which you can politicize it. In other words... Masks. They're interesting debates. They're, and some of them, like, you know, vaccine passport, interesting debate. Um, vaccination for schools. I mean, we're, we require all sorts of vaccines for schools. What about this one? I would not be surprised to answer your question if we have both of those debates soon. Will, we have about a minute and a half left. Briefly, I want to ask you this. I've seen some conservatives, and, and I talked about this yesterday a little bit on the show, some conservatives celebrating the loss of the U.S. women's soccer team in the Olympics, 3 nothing to Sweden. They did their kneeling thing. I can't stand how politicized that team has gotten. They've done so deliberately. It made me less sad to see them lose, I guess, in some way. But I, to me, the, the step of actually rooting against America in a sporting event, it's, I'm not quite there. And I, I wonder how you think about the reaction that we've seen on this front. I won't root against America, even if the women's soccer team has rooted against America. And make no mistake, with the indictments that many of those players have made about who America is and what we are, they have actively rooted against America. That being said, I won't root against them, but there is no team that I can think of in the American sports landscape that has burned up more fan goodwill and credibility over the last several years than the U.S. women's national soccer team. Yeah, I think that's – I think that – they're certainly in the running. There's no question about it. And I'm not going to say, hey, go Sweden. I'm glad we lost. But it's not quite the same bitter pill to swallow because they've injected something into this process that I wish wasn't there. And that's their choice, but there are consequences as well, and people will feel potentially very strongly about it. Will Kane, Fox & Friends weekend co-host. His podcast is the Will Kane Podcast. Thank you, sir. Okay. Thanks, man. You bet. We'll be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back here on The Guy Benson Show. So my bestie and co-author of the book End of Discussion, Mary Catherine Hamm, she's at CNN. She's been there for a couple of years. And she's gotten into it on the air a few times in recent days. She got into it on free speech and so-called misinformation with Paul Begala with Anderson Cooper the other night. And then just yesterday, she went up against David Gregory, the former NBC News anchor, who's now, I guess, a CNN contributor. And they were talking about Dr. Fauci and the throwdown between Fauci and Senator Rand Paul, and they're still going at each other through the press. And unsurprisingly, everyone on the panel was very pro-Fauci, except for Mary Catherine, who made the point about how asking tough and fair questions of Fauci is actually not an affront, and those questions should be asked, and just getting indignant is not really an answer. And she also took a dig at the media in the process. Cut 26. I don't think it's entirely a game. I think it's that Fauci is a very powerful public official who deserves and rarely gets tough questioning in almost any realm. Uh, He gets, frankly, a lot of fangirling uh, and a lot of uh, just sort of forum for his ideas. And he doesn't get a lot of pushback. 
Senator Paul understood the assignment here. He's asking about a tough subject that admittedly none of us are experts on, but I would like to know a lot more about. And despite his protestations, tough questions for Dr. Anthony Fauci are not attacks on science itself. This is something we should talk about. And she's referring to the gain of function research allegations back and forth. And I mentioned yesterday that the Washington Post's Josh Rogan, for example, actually Rand Paul has the better case here. And Fauci just saying, how dare you? That's basically my integrity. How dare you? That's not a detailed reply. And it seems like he figures the deeper we get into the weeds, the harder it will be for average people to understand. Probably true in this case in such a technical realm. But it feels like these are deflections and that Fauci is counting at least to some extent on his fangirls, if you will, in the media just to do the thing where they all get mad. Remember when he said, well, attack on me is an attack on science. Basically, Fauci said, I am science. That is not persuasive or convincing to someone like me. And boy, did the panel blow up after Mary Catherine said that. They were taking it personally on Fauci's behalf. This is part of the problem. The people who should be pushing back and asking tough questions have become so invested. Everyone seems like so invested in their narratives, both sides, that it clouds any real conversation or critical thinking. And that's particularly inexcusable for journalists or people who say that they're journalists. David Gregory later on, because Mary Catherine pointed out a few different areas where Fauci has hurt his own credibility on masks, reversal, on herd immunity. Fauci's admitted to telling a white lie there. And on a number of different topics, she raised them, and Gregory said, oh, well, this is cable news silliness, very dismissive of Mary Catherine's fully salient points. Cable news silliness. That's not a reply, David. I know you used to be on network news. Now you're slumming it with the rest of us on cable, and you might have to deal with actual arguments that you can't just declare invalid or unserious. I thought that was a pretty demeaning and also factually wrong response and telling. When you're in a bubble, you can get very lazy. And Mary Catherine did a little bit of puncturing of the bubble, and boy, the reaction was severe and instructive. The Guy Benson Show returns as soon as we come back. Stay tuned. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The Guy Benson Show. We continue here on The Guy Benson Show from Indianapolis, Indiana. Thanks for listening. Yesterday on the show, very briefly, because the audio was just coming through, Governor Ron DeSantis down in Florida held a press conference about COVID and vaccines, and I think he did a really nice job, so much so that I mentioned it last night on a special report. They did with the panel, the regular installment where you predict a headline for the next day, and mine involved DeSantis and the way that he communicated about vaccines and the virus. So I want to flesh that out a little bit more and have you listen to it, not only because I think he makes really good points and is accurate. I think he also talks about these issues in a way that is compelling and if not persuasive, at least designed, it seems to me, to make people really think. And he doesn't sneer or condescend to unvaccinated people, but he does 
address them in a serious way, which I think is really smart and productive. And I think not only was this a good thing for him to do on the merits, I think probably was smart politically as well. These go hand in hand in this case. So we played this clip, cut one, where he's just explaining why the vaccines are saving lives. Listen. So here's, I think, the the most important thing with the data. If you are vaccinated, fully vaccinated, the chance of you getting seriously ill or dying from COVID is effectively zero. If you look at the people that are being admitted to hospitals, uh, over 95% of them are either not fully vaccinated or not vaccinated at all. And so these vaccines are saving lives. That's correct. This is a man who knows the data inside and out. He's prepared. And he wants Floridians to know that the vaccines are saving lives. And that's part of the reason for more people to get vaccinated. I just want to compare and contrast what he said there, which was nuanced and accurate, versus what President Biden said in his town hall meeting on CNN, which was unfortunately not true. Listen to cut 10 from last night. The, the various shots that people are getting now cover that. They're, they're, you're okay. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. So broadly kind of true. Obviously, we know that the vaccines help prevent infection to a very large degree, but not a total degree, which is why we've had this whole ongoing conversation about breakthrough cases for people who are vaccinated, who get infected. But the good news is they get infected with such a mild case that in many cases they don't even know that they're infected, asymptomatic. What DeSantis said was much more nuanced and specific and accurate. Biden's out here saying, if you get the vaccines, you're not going to get COVID. That's not true. And you might say, well, broadly speaking, it's mostly true. Okay, but if you're talking to vaccine-skeptical people and you're trying to win some people over, broad promises, big promises that sound definitive from leaders that are clearly disproven with media accounts, for example, about breakthrough cases. If you hear a president say, if you take the vaccines, you're not going to get COVID, then you can find a thousand headlines about a few people who've gotten mild or asymptomatic cases, but they did get COVID after being vaccinated. You're going to say, I don't believe this person. And I can't really blame you for that. It's important for leaders to talk carefully and responsibly and accurately about this stuff, which is what DeSantis did. He said, if you're fully vaccinated, the chance of you getting seriously ill or dying from COVID is effectively zero. That is correct. That is the key bottom line. And Biden just sort of bumbled into this overpromise. And that's the type of overpromising from officials that will turn people off and hurt credibility. So maybe Joe Biden can take a lesson or two from Ron DeSantis on this stuff. Level with people and be accurate. Don't just say happy-sounding things that people will recognize aren't entirely true, and then your credibility as a messenger is kaput, or at least significantly diminished. So DeSantis, back to Florida, and this is why I would much rather listen to DeSantis on this stuff than Biden. I think DeSantis has been right on a lot of stuff. And he's proven that over many months. And he's taken the slings and the arrows and the BS attacks and he counters them and he parries them well because he knows what he's talking about. He spends a lot of time thinking about this stuff, which I think is admirable. It's what a leader should be doing. 
So talking about the elderly, of course, a very vulnerable community, disproportionately high elderly population down in Florida. Here's what DeSantis said about them in cut two. They are reducing mortality. Mortality in nursing homes since we rolled out the vaccines in December is down over 95% due to COVID. Mortality for elderly people since we rolled out the vaccines is down nearly 90%. And so we're proud in Florida that we put seniors first on that because they were the most vulnerable. We have 85% of our seniors that are vaccinated and about 75% of folks over the age of 50. We have no mandate. We've provided information to people um, and and we've uh, been very honest about any data that, that comes out. And I can tell you that if you look, uh, you are seeing people that are vaccinated. For whatever reason, some I think can test positive if you're vaccinated, but they don't get seriously ill in, except maybe rare instances. There's always one-offs on stuff. But I can tell you in Florida, your chance of surviving if you're vaccinated is close to 100%. Again, he's doing this the right way. He's bragging about the numbers as they should. Remember, he got attacked for prioritizing seniors at first. There are people looking for any reason to go after him, saying, oh, this is the wrong priority. Of course it was the right priority. Of course it was. And the results speak for themselves. And he says, you can test positive if you're vaccinated, but you don't get seriously ill, except for very rare instances. That is the right, truthful thing compared to and juxtaposed with what we just played from President Biden. Two leaders, same day, different messages. Which one do you think is going to work better? I think you can tell what my opinion is on that. So DeSantis talked about the retracting briefly of the J&J vaccine. He thought that was a mistake that undermined confidence. I agree. We talked about that here on the show. He talked about summer ways into the fall. He had a lot of different comments on that. But I want to get to this next part of what Governor DeSantis talked about in terms of reaching unvaccinated people and how you talk to people who are skeptical. Not arrogantly and sneeringly, but with a different approach. Cut five. I get a little bit frustrated when I see some of these jurisdictions saying, even if you're healthy and vaccinated, you must wear a mask because we're seeing increased cases. Understand what that message is sending to people who aren't vaccinated. It's telling them that the vaccines don't work. I think that's the worst message you can send to people um, at this time, because I think that the data has been really, really good in terms of preserving people, uh, saving people's lives, reducing mortality dramatically. And I I can tell you that you're going to end up having over 95% of folks that end up seriously ill from this point on are going to be people who are not vaccinated. And so that's the single most important thing that, that people can understand. All right, so he's putting it out there that the overwhelming majority of really sick people from COVID at this stage and beyond are unvaccinated people. It is an epidemic among the unvaccinated, which is not to say that unvaccinated people can't get the disease and then have a mild or moderate case and recover and have natural immunity. Of course, that's true for a lot of people, but not everyone. And the odds are much higher of having a bad problem with COVID, much higher. I mean, it's not even close, night and day, if you're unvaccinated versus not. And he In this clip that you just heard, DeSantis expressing a frustration that I've talked about here. And I know some people are sort of waving this off like it's not really a thing. It's maybe overblown. I have just personally heard from people echoing exactly what DeSantis said. Unvaccinated friends of mine. Every time a government entity comes out and says, vaccinated people have to do all this stuff, 
put the mask back on, the restrictions apply to you, you are sending a message to a certain group of unvaccinated people, aha, the government doesn't really believe that these things work, or else they would be leaving vaccinated people alone. That is real. I don't know how widespread that belief is, but I know for sure that it's real, and DeSantis seems to get it too. It's also intuitive. Then the Florida governor talked about how officials hectoring people is not the right approach in his mind. Cut six. And I understand that the folks who, when we first rolled this out, oh my gosh, it was like the new iPhone times 10. I mean, I'm going down to nursing homes. I would go to senior communities. They were so happy, these seniors. There was not a demand problem. It was a supply problem. And as we got more and more, we did millions and millions of seniors. And we're really proud of that. As you got into the general public, particularly under 50, the, the interest in it was obviously not as intense. And so we've done a lot of people. We've done um, millions of people who are under 50 as well. But you're in a situation now where a lot of the folks who are not taking it, it's accessible to everyone. You know, they have different reasons for why they don't take it. And I think that the more they're hectored by government officials or some of these folks, that is not going to get them to yes. It's not going to get them to yes. It's human nature. He's right about that. He understands it. It's almost like he's talking there to other public officials. Don't do it this way. It's going to backfire because he gets it. The way to do it is the approach that we have endeavored to succeed with here on this show, which is to have honest conversations among adults. And DeSantis seems to agree in Cut 27. I think, I think these are folks that, that have skepticism of authorities. Uh, I think they have different reasons why they may not do it. I don't think most of them think COVID is a hoax or anything. I think that they understand. Some of them are very young and healthy, and they're making the calculation that, that they'll likely be able to handle it, and I understand that too. But as you're trying to reach some of these folks, I think it's important to just be honest with them about, about the risks of, of COVID. If, there are, if they are in a less risky category, you should just be honest with that and not try to scare people into taking it, which a lot of these authorities have done. They see that, and I think that they're, they're very keen on that. So what my view has always been is these vaccines, and you can look at the EUAs, there are occasionally some side effects. But if you're 70 years old, man, the benefit is so much better than, than worrying, worrying about some of that. It's not even close. I'm just loving the way he's approaching this and the way he's talking about this and communicating. Be honest. If the risk is, in fact, lower, don't try to pretend otherwise. Don't run around to young people who are healthy saying, you better take this or you might die. Okay, there's a small, small chance that you might die, but probably not. There are other reasons that you can explain that the vaccines are helpful. For example, avoiding long-haul symptoms of COVID, which is a thing. For a pretty striking number of people who survive COVID. Long-term effects involving your neurological system. Long-term effects involving your heart. Trying to get closer toward herd immunity. Just having, if you do have a breakthrough case, a much less unpleasant experience. Right? These are all good reasons for young people to get the vaccine that I think are more relevant and applicable than death, doom, and gloom that is overwhelmingly unlikely, especially for certain demographics. And I think talking to people like they are sophisticated adults who can make decisions and weigh risk factors is way better than just this hammer that some people are using instead. And it's obviously ineffective in many cases.
rounding this thing out, here's DeSantis talking about the data. Cut 28. Talking about young kids, parents going to look at that and maybe make a little bit different calculation. And that is fine. But just understand where we're at. Understand the, the benefits, particularly folks who may have health conditions or who are a little older. Uh, and I can tell you the data has been very strong. If the data wasn't strong, then we would have to acknowledge that to people. And I would be the first to want to do it. And I think that's right. I think that's true. Given his track record, he has told some uncomfortable truths about COVID that has made him public enemy number one among some on the left. But he was right about those things. And in his mind, he was always following the data. And that's what he's doing here in his very strong endorsement of the vaccines. And finally, one more piece of nuance from DeSantis that needs to be underscored one last time. Cut 29. But the data has been really strong when you have these upticks. uh, It's affecting for things beyond cases. It's affecting in a clinical way people almost entirely who are unvaccinated. I also am not I've never been driven by the case counts because you have people who may test positive now. We know who who are vaccinated. And so they'll be positive, but they're almost entirely not going to get a serious illness. And so to me, it's about preventing the illness, not a positive test. And that's the key of these vaccines. And we've talked about the decoupling, which is great news, the apparent decoupling between cases and deaths. You can have a case-demic, as they call it, lots of cases rising. But if the death numbers don't follow, and we're seeing in Israel and the U.K. and here in the U.S., that is the case thanks to vaccination and also some natural immunity as well, the whole ball game is keeping people relatively healthy, out of hospitals, and, of course, alive. And the vaccines are super, super good at that. So, again, this is expectations management, data-driven analysis, respectful recommendations in a way that is a departure from what we have seen from other leaders, and certainly departure on the expectations management and the precision of arguments than we saw from the president, Joe Biden, last night. So again, part of the reason that I've become increasingly a fan of Ron DeSantis is because I think that he is an effective communicator who does his homework and doesn't want to treat people like children. And that's a point of difference certainly with a number of other officials that we've all been hearing from for a very long time. And yesterday, he did it as well as I have seen in a long time, which is why I wanted to come and play the audio for you, hear it from him, not necessarily from me. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. We're back on the Guy Benson Show. One more thought on Governor Ron DeSantis down in Florida. One of his Democratic challengers is Nikki Freed. She's one of the last remaining statewide Democrats in any position in that state. She's the agriculture commissioner. And she has announced that she's running. She has done really dumb and irresponsible things like promoting the conspiracy theories of Rebecca Jones, who's a nut. But because she was going after the state of Florida and Ron DeSantis, some people in the media and in Florida Democratic circles just invested in Rebecca Jones because they wanted to believe the things that she was saying, even though they are not true at all. 
So Nikki Freed is not a credible person. But she's out there running, and she tweeted this yesterday. Ron DeSantis has Fox News, but we have everyone else. Florida will be blue in 2022. Well, I would not bet on that. If you had to ask me to bet my money, I would bet on Ron DeSantis and Marco Rubio winning re-election in the state of Florida next year. Now, nothing's guaranteed, but I think that they have the advantage. Maybe a significant advantage in each of their cases. But I like this tacit admission. right? She does the stupid Fox News thing. Ron DeSantis has Fox News. We have everyone else. If she's talking about everyone else in the sense of the media, all the other mainstream media, that is true. The Democrats do have everyone else. They always do. It's good that we can actually talk about that openly, which is why alternative voices are so important, because they speak monolithically. They have an agenda. They are in bed with the Democrats, and they all know it, and we all know it. So let's examine candidates and elections on their merits and cut through a lot of the nonsense that we get from the media which in many cases are just carrying water for the Democratic Party. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Don't go anywhere. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Time for the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show, coming to you from Indianapolis, Indiana. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free, on demand, every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you download your free podcasts. And as always, the happy hour sponsored by our friends at the Finnish Long Drink, which is so good, especially when it's hot out. Expanding across the country, it's Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage. It's in America, and it is exploding in popularity. Their website is thelongdrink.com. You can see where they're sold near you or order online. Thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only, please. Somewhere where the long drink is extremely popular is the state of Texas, where I'm actually headed late next week. I'm excited to get back to Texas. And joining me now from the state of Texas is Congressman Dan Crenshaw, a Republican, as I mentioned, from the Lone Star State. His book is Fortitude, American Resilience in the Era of Outrage. Congressman, great to have you here again. Great. Thanks for having me. Always great to be with you. So you're in Washington, D.C. right now, it sounds like, according to the team here. And that's your job, is to represent your constituents in Washington, D.C., because you're elected to the federal branch in Congress. Strangely, there are some other lawmakers also in Washington, D.C. right now from your state, but that's not their job. Their job is very different. Their job is to be elsewhere. In fact, in Austin, Texas, making laws and casting votes, which is why they were elected instead, and we've covered this a lot here, uh, they have fled to the nation's capital. They've gotten a huge amount of attention from the media, uh, both good and bad. Some of the bad is apparently 
brought upon them by themselves and some of their decisions that they've made. I've seen you've been very active on social media commenting on these runaway Democrats from your home state who have come to Washington, D.C. And one tweet in particular, I thought, encapsulated things. You just sort of ran through everything that they've done and threw out there a hypothetical about what the media coverage and tone might be if it were Republican members doing exactly these things. I don't know how anyone can deny that point, quite frankly. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the entire thing has been comical, Um, and it probably had not turned out the way they thought it would. I mean, they thought they were going to be hailed as heroes, heroes defending voting rights. You know, making it easier to vote. I, I, I'm so sick of this left-wing talking point, I, and I, I'm going to kind of go on a tangent here and address that really quick. You know, because you, you hear you hear like CNN talk show hosts, and they'll say, "But why don't you want to make voting easier?" And they say it with this sort of this sort of like condescending tone that, like, how could, what is wrong with you? It just should be easier. Well, how easy? You know, it, it, in the end, voting and elections are a competition, and for any competition. You have to have a set of rules, and it has to be very carefully defined rules, and you have to make sure that everybody adheres to those rules. Otherwise, there's no point in a competition. You have to think about it that way. And so, yeah, it should be easier to score a soccer goal, right, in a game. I want to make it easier. Well, no, there's rules in place that prevent that easiness from happening. You have to be able to earn that. It's the same with any kind of competition. And it already is extremely easy to vote. Right? There's nobody in America that has a hard time voting. This is a myth generated by the left in order to make it easier to cheat, not easier to vote, but to cheat, and for Democrat operatives to fill out ballots, things like that. That's really what they're fighting against. And, and what, I, what, I, what I loved pointing out, we did a great video on this, that when you ask Democrats, what's the most egregious thing in these voting bills? Like, really, like what, what is it exactly that you're so against? What, what counts as voter suppression? And they can't name anything. They can't. Notice they never tweet any examples. Notice they never quote anything in the bill. That's what everybody has to look at. And that's kind of, a, I think, a general rule when discerning arguments between the political parties is what are, what are their arguments actually being used? What facts are they presenting? And in this case, there's none. And then they clown themselves by flying on a private jet, sending a bunch of Miller Lite, and then all got COVID, and then they stuck at the White House and the, <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the Speaker of the House's office. So, I mean, it, it's just been a political disaster for them. It has. And actually, listening to that explanation, it spurred a couple thoughts. One, you mentioned voter suppression for for years. Congressman, you know this for years and years and years. The collective political left media, elected officials and on and on. They have voter ID voter suppression. I mean, it was an official talking point of the party. Now, the polling has been such a disaster for them on that front. They have like not only failed to persuade anyone, people have gone in the other direction. It's an 80-20 issue that they're losing on. So finally they decide to give it up. And not only are they giving it up, they're trying to pretend like they never opposed voter ID. Jim Clyburn said right. no Democrat has ever opposed voter IDs. Well, he called it voter suppression in a tweet a few months ago. This is what they've always done. So I find it interesting that they are constantly screaming suppression. And one of the things that they were most angry about in the area of supposed suppression, i.e. voter ID, just a heel turn, a 180 on a dime, when they finally realize that myth wasn't really selling with the American people. I think that undermines a lot of their credibility. And to the second point, the rules of the game. I think this is a really good way of framing it, because it's a competition. You have to win fair and square. 
And if they say, well, why don't you make it easier to vote? You could follow up with the question, okay, would you want to make it easier for people to, let's say, vote twice in multiple states or even in the same jurisdiction? They'd say, no, of course not. Why not? Well, because it's against the rules. Aha. So there are rules. The rules have to be enforced. It's not suppression to say that you don't want someone to vote twice. And they don't really want to make this logical connection, right? They don't want, apparently, certain rules enforced for certain people because clearly they believe they will benefit, they will be advantaged by something if there's a certain amount of ambiguity or lack of enforcement behind these rules. And I think by talking about it the way you just did, I haven't heard it presented that way before, about just the rules of the game in a competition. I think it makes it harder for them to grandstand the way that they so often do. Yeah. I mean, look, on, on our side, we, we got to get our arguments right. And uh, we don't always do that. So <laughs> I, I, I find it important to do that. Fact and, check true. And when, you're, yeah, and, when you're, and when you're talking about election integrity, it's a real problem. And people are right to believe that it's a real problem. But you have to argue it correctly. And, and the way I argue it is this. You know, yes, it's rules of the game. And also... You have to you have to use the following point. The election, the, the integrity of an election must be self-evident, meaning you look at the process of how you voted and you're not sure how you would cheat. Like that that gives you confidence in the election. That's so important. And and Democrats just dismiss that like it like it's meaningless. And 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 again, like I, I wish I could believe that their intentions were good on this, that they really just want people to be able to access the polls. But like the, the fact is, is everybody can. You know, and, and you know, Texas being under the microscope right now, like we have two weeks of early voting. Delaware, Biden's home state, has none. You know, you know, you know what these laws were, these changes were doing, making the making making the early voting times across counties the same. I mean, just so people aren't confused, eliminating drive-through voting and 24-hour voting. Like that's not voter suppression. That's just like right. look, like there has to be some limiting. Yeah, factor. going back like, to like, a pre-pandemic <laughs> status quo, right? Going back to what it was in 2018 before there was a massive right. pandemic. That's not suppression. That's not ripping away people's right to vote. And they go to 11 all the time with all of their arguments, and it gets exhausting. And I think a lot of people, frankly, don't believe it which is why they end up on the wrong side of polling on this stuff. In Georgia, for example, I think we'll see the same in Texas. Now, there is a truth here on the other side, which is when conservatives and Republicans cry fraud and claim an election has been stolen when that's not the case, that's also a problem, and it shouldn't justify things being done in the name of a lie. And this is something that comes back to January 6th, what happened there. A lot of people believe something that wasn't true. And the results were pretty disgraceful. There's this whole dust up now, Congressman, on Capitol Hill, especially among the leaders of the two parties in the House, about the commission that the Democrats are putting together, this special committee, on January 6th. Republicans in the Senate killed the bipartisan effort, which was something I supported. Then the Democrats said, okay, if you're going to kill that, we're going to do our own thing. And you get to pick five members. We have our members. Pelosi got her team intact and then she just yesterday vetoed two of the picks from leader mccarthy now i think there's some cynicism here among some republicans i've been open about that but i also think it was a big misstep we talked to mike gallagher about this yesterday a misstep from her 
She's making it a lot easier for Republicans to say, which they were planning to say all along, oh, this is partisan, this is illegitimate, she's put her thumb on the scale, this isn't really about fact-finding, this is about political point scoring. And then she comes out and says 40% of the Republican members she's not going to allow to even be on the panel. It's like she's making McCarthy's argument for him. And then he came out and said, okay, if you're not going to do that, then we're out of here. And it's a partisan thing. It's like she just gave him a gift on a silver platter. That's my take on it. What are you thinking as you observe this squabble about January 6th, figuring out what happened, having a real investigation? Because I think what happened was really disgraceful. But now, of course, it seems to have devolved predictably into partisan finger pointing. Yeah, I think that analysis is generally correct. I think McCarthy uh, couldn't have played this better. Um, you know, and and uh, not even sure he could have predicted Pelosi's actions on that. Maybe he did. Um, and she did make a mistake doing that. But I, I, frankly, I think the whole commission is a mistake. I mean, I think I, I, I have the same opinion about what happened on January 6th as you do, and I don't like people downplaying it. Uh, look, I, I, I understand that you can show videos of people just taking selfies and, you know, just kind of laughing about it. But you can also see other videos that are much, much worse. And, and you know, yeah. we just have to acknowledge that. It was a bad day. But I also don't think there's any mystery as to what happened that day. And that, that's why I'm against the commission. And, and one, it's very obviously politically motivated. But two, you can't compare this to like a 9-11 commission. You know, the 9-11 commission had real unanswered questions. There was real mysteries to solve, like real intelligence failures that really needed to be rooted out. Um, that, that is not the case here. Uh, it, it's, it's quite obvious what happened and why it happened. I, I, I don't think there's any mystery to it whatsoever. And so what is the commission looking for? You know, a commission should have a set of questions that it's trying to get answers to. And whatever those questions but it, but, are... But, but Congressman, right if, if a lot of... I, I tend to agree that there aren't a lot of mysteries here. I think you and I probably agree on not only what happened, but why and who is primarily responsible. And we talked about it shortly after January 6th on this program. I remember that conversation very well because it was a pretty intense time and a pretty intense interview. But there are, if you look at the polling, a lot of Republican voters still believe Joe Biden didn't win the election. They believe Antifa was responsible for what happened at the Capitol. So clearly, in some people's minds, what reality is is not what they believe. And so I don't know if a, if a congressional panel is going to change that, but there is a lot of misinformation or misperceptions out there among GOP voters. And I, I don't know what can be done to help correct that. I don't know what the mechanism is, but it is something that worries me because we can't really have a functioning, flourishing society and political system if we live in alternate, separate universes on just basic facts. Yeah, I, I, I think people tell pollsters something a little different than they know in their hearts um, because they sort of want to still wear their jersey and they don't want to give in to the other side. You have to understand, I think that's how a lot of people come at this. When I, I, I've done so many events, seen so many people, um, you know, over the last six months, and people really are past it. Um, this is, I mean, but in a healthy way, not like in a denial way. I mean, it's, so I, I actually don't think the polling truly represents, I think, your average conservative on the ground. Um, that what might you, be what true you lay to out is, 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 What you lay out is still a problem. Like, there, there are definitely people who say these things, and they're just wrong. And it's just going to take time for that truth to sort of seep in. You know, you try and force it on somebody through a partisan commission, it, it will have the opposite effect. Um, it'll, it'll just confirm their beliefs, to be perfectly honest. 
Well, and also um, those beliefs are fueled and influenced and reinforced somewhat regularly by the former president, which I don't think is helpful at all. Briefly, Congressman, last subject, one quick question on it. This amount of spending that's being proposed. I saw Pelosi today. We played the audio earlier. She said we're not going to touch any sort of bipartisan bill on infrastructure until we pass a huge reconciliation package, trillions of dollars of lefty spending. I don't really know why any Republican would go along with any of this, given the game, the scheme that these Democrats are currently engaged in. I mean, the the numbers are mind-bending, what they're talking about here. Well, I certainly hope no Republican goes along with it. We, I mean, we really can't. Um, this is – this spending has reached astronomical proportions, and it's having real effects on the economy. I think the long-term effects are going to be uh, diminished growth prospects, which is a real problem. You know, we we need to get back to work philosophy of um, pro-growth and getting people back to work and jobs. The you know the economy needs to be number one, but they're but the Democrats I think fundamentally don't understand what makes an economy run and what makes an economy grow and what creates jobs and prosperity. I mean, I. I don't know. That sounds disparaging, I guess, but it's it's. I think it's true, and the spending bill is a part of that. It's a lot of wasted spending, um, too, that probably won't result in better outcomes for anybody. So well, it's I, also I don't kind of could it, it stops you. It stops you in your tracks a little bit when the president of the United States, like he did last night, says, "Oh yeah, spending four trillion more dollars will reduce inflation." Like I don't know what economics book that comes out of. But it's not rooted in reality, and it just, again, it's pretty bracing to see senior members of the other party say some of these things with a straight face as if they believe it, or maybe they don't fully believe it, but they want to sell their spending anyway. We're tracking it closely, and we always appreciate your perspective on all this stuff. Congressman Dan Crenshaw, Republican of Texas, thanks for the time, sir. Talk soon. Hey, thanks, Guy. It was good to be with you. Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues next. Guy Benson will be right back. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Good look, here's the deal. Moody's today when our Wall Street firm, not some liberal think tank, said, if we pass the other two things I'm trying to get done, we will, in fact, reduce inflation, reduce inflation, reduce inflation, because we're going to be providing good opportunities and jobs for people who, in fact, are going to be reinvesting that money back in all the things we're talking about, driving down prices, not raising prices. That's not how this works. It's the Guy Benson Show. We're back. I mentioned that soundbite to Congressman Crenshaw in the last segment. Biden last night saying $4 trillion of new spending on all these so-called progressive policies on top of all the trillions already spent with the inflation happening before our very eyes. He said trillions more will reduce inflation. He said it three times. He can say it 17 times. Doesn't make it true. Axios reports that Biden's own pollster is warning that inflation is biting. People are recognizing it and they are hurting from it. When the value of the dollar is already decreasing, the government printing and spending and borrowing trillions more is going to make the problem worse. 
Echelon Insights did a poll, and they found that overwhelmingly the American people are getting concerned about inflation, and they see it in their lives. Nine out of ten nearly see gas and grocery prices going up. Seven out of ten, roughly, say the same for electricity, health care, cars. Democrats can't talk their way out of this. Economics have certain realities. There's gravity. There are laws of economics that can't be spun away. And Democrats apparently are concerned about the political punch that this is going to pack, while at the same time are moving full throttle forward on these really reckless policies. And they're on a collision course. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Back with more on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Straight ahead. GuyBensonShow.com It's the happy hour. We are back on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier today, we chatted with our friend and colleague here at Fox News, Will Kane, co-anchor of Fox and Friends Weekend. We talk sports, we talk politics, everything in between. Always a fun visit with Will Kane. Today, no exception. Here's part of that conversation. This report about the NFL and what they've done, it's not even a report. They put out uh, new guidance today. I'm just going to read. This is a tweet from a reporter at the NFL Network. Quote, the NFL just informed clubs that if a game cannot be rescheduled during the 18-week season in 2021 due to a COVID outbreak among unvaccinated players, the team with the outbreak will forfeit the game will be credited with a loss for playoff seating. Massive implications. And, I mean, I read that, and then I read it again. Like, okay, this is the NFL getting pretty serious, not just on COVID, but on the vaccine as well. When you start talking about uh, forfeit losses with playoff implications, that's going to get a lot of attention from head coaches, medical staffs, general managers, etc., Yes, and it leaves open the question that Jalen Ramsey, who's a cornerback for the Los Angeles Rams, asked today. Essentially, what happens if a vaccinated player gets diagnosed with COVID? What happens if mm-hmm. you have an outbreak of COVID among vaccinated players? Do you have the right, same like the type Texas of Democrats, for example? Exactly. Right? Like in mild cases, but they're they're technical positive cases. How does that get adjudicated? Right. Is it the same type of punitive forfeit repercussions if your vaccinated players come down? With COVID, look, at some point, we're going to have to ask ourselves, we have to acknowledge two things at the same time, Guy. I'd be curious where you are on this. The vaccine clearly is perhaps to some extent still allowing what we're calling breakthrough diagnosis or breakthrough infections, but reducing the severity of the disease. But yet there are people, but yet still there are people who are concerned, reserved, hesitant to get the virus. And at some point, we're just going to have to move forward with society and trust that people make the decisions for themselves that they find appropriate. And if they suffer the consequences, that's what happens in a free society. But we have to acknowledge that the vaccine is protecting everyone else from those consequences that that free person chose. So why do we, A, Hector, and punish everyone for a decision at this point you would have to assume they're very well aware of the cost-benefit analysis. Yeah, I mean, that's generally where I am. I did see a story that there are now nursing home outbreaks again because there are unvaccinated nursing home workers. And that's an area where I'm like, hell, if if you run a nursing home, I have no problem with a vaccine requirement. My full dialogue with Will Kane, co-anchor of Fox & Friends Weekend, available online 
and on the free podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your free podcasts. When we come back the home stretch, I'm about to visit a new state that I've never been to before. And I'm getting close to 50. Have I been to the most states of anyone on this radio team? We will each give our numbers when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Pushing towards the weekend. It's the home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday. I've been in Indianapolis the last two days. And in fact, I'll do the show from here again tomorrow, as it turns out. In the evening after the show, hopping on a plane and heading for the first time. You won't be shocked that it's not a direct flight from Indianapolis, but via Denver, I'll be traveling to Idaho for the first time. And I'm very excited, not just to speak to this group and go to a beautiful place, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, which I've heard just amazing things about the lake and the resort there, and I'm excited to see it. It seems, based on photos and everything, just to be pristine and gorgeous. Maybe a little cold in the wintertime, but we're in the heart of the summer, which is great. But I also enjoy checking new states and countries, for that matter, off of my list. I'm an inveterate traveler. It's always been in my blood. And I'm getting awfully close to having been to all 50 states in our great country. I've been sitting on 47 for a while now. Idaho will be 48. So I only have two more to go. And one of them I'm almost ashamed to say because it's so close to where I live. It doesn't make any sense. But I have not been to West Virginia. That's not a bad drive at all. People that I know from D.C. and Northern Virginia, they drive to do hikes and that sort of thing in West Virginia. Harper's Ferry, I mean, drop of a hat. You could just go last minute. It's that close. But it just has never popped up on my schedule. For whatever reason, we've never done it. At some point, of course, I will. I have to get to all 50. And there's no way I'm going to allow West Virginia to stand in the way. And if you're listening in West Virginia, hello, I'm waving at you. I will get there at some point, hopefully soon. The other one, so that would be 49, the 50th, the last one after Idaho, when I touch down tomorrow, will be Arkansas. So if you're a listener in Arkansas, you've got a conservative group, Invite me down. i got to get to Arkansas. Maybe I'll come in during the fall, one of these years, either this fall or next fall, see a Razorbacks game, check some SEC football. Talked about SEC football with Will Kane earlier. But that's it. Arkansas, Idaho, West Virginia, in alphabetical order, my last three. With Idaho, that box getting checked, God willing, tomorrow. So, yeah, I'm kind of excited about it. 47, I mean, it's, it's a pretty good number. I think it's a strong number. I am willing to bet that I'm probably high atop the list here at the team. I asked them to calculate the states that they've been to. So let's go around the horn. You know where I am. 47, almost 48. Wyatt, how many states have you been to? So I counted and 13. Unlucky number 13. Oh, okay. So you, I would imagine, mostly in the north. East, yes? Yes, mostly okay. northeast, east coast. we got to get you to branch out. Max, how many have you been to? Ten, but that's not, oh, including, that's not including the states that I've driven through. Okay, so we might have to 
address the formula, what counts and what doesn't count. So you're saying there are some states that you left off your list that you have driven through but not done anything in. Correct. Okay, so you are counting 10. 10 is not a very high number. That's by my rudimentary math is 20%. You are missing out on 80% of these United States thus far, Max. So I want you to think about that. I want you to put together a plan of action to improve that number. Producer Christine, please tell me you're a little higher. 19. Okay. Slightly more respectable, but no one's even above the halfway, halfway. mark besides me. Oh, man. Maybe, maybe, Christine, you need to plan a road trip with your best friends and stop you? in a whole bunch of states. I've been to them, though, so it's just Max and Wyatt. I'm volunteering them. I can well, hear them but the best part grumbling about our already. road trip was you could, you know, give us all the useful information of each state. No, no. I, I think Wyatt can probably, you know, he reads encyclopedias <laughs> for pleasure at night, so he can probably be the tour guide. Max can drive, and you can, I was going to say provide adult supervision, but it's probably the other way around. You can drink, because you won't be driving. <laughs> I can't drink in the car. That's probably true. Even through a straw? That's probably an open container. I don't, I don't want to get the driver, i.e. Max, in any trouble. So Max brought up a fair point, though. What really qualifies a state visit? Like, what counts? Because if you've just driven through, in his mind, it doesn't count. I tend to agree. I feel like you have to have done something of note, even like having a meal, for example. And just being in the airport doesn't count, in my book. Although... I will contradict myself very briefly. I would argue that I've been to Ireland, for example, when I'm counting countries. I would argue, uh, and I'm not fully committed to this, but I would generally say that I've been to Ireland for this reason. You remember when we took the show on the road, I did some of the show from Brussels and then Russia, because I was on a trip with the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, back during the Trump administration. I was part of the press delegation. He invited me along. We got an interview with him. It was great. We had to stop on the way back from Sochi, Russia. The aircraft that we were on wasn't big enough, didn't have the fuel capacity to get from Russia back to Washington, D.C. and Andrews Air Force Base, I guess it's Joint Base Andrews now, in one nonstop trip. We had to stop for refueling in Shannon, Ireland. So we stopped. Yes, we sat on the tarmac, but there was an opportunity to get off the plane. It was middle of the night, probably 2 a.m., something like that. And my whole internal clock was totally messed up because I'd been in so many different time zones. I didn't know where I was. But I got off the plane. It was maybe an hour-long refueling process, and they had one bar open for this purpose with a bartender there was Guinness that you could get, so I had, I'm not a big dark beer guy, but just on principle, I had a little bit of Guinness in Ireland, served to me by an Irish bartender off the plane, and I would at least say that that half counts. And I've already mentioned on the air that Northwestern's supposed to play Nebraska in football next season in Dublin. I'm planning to go to that, so that would fully count, obviously, going for a full weekend and seeing a sporting event and all that. So I'd say I've kind of been to Ireland, but for my state-by-state tour here over the course of my life and my career, I would say at least a meal outside of an airport 
would qualify as a state visit. Like, for instance, my senior year of college for spring break, we drove from Chicago to Big Sky, Montana. And on the way out, we stopped at, because we went through South Dakota, we stopped at Mount Rushmore, got out of the car, took a picture, and then kept going. I count that. I've been to South Dakota. I saw Mount Rushmore. My feet were on the ground. It was a tourist attraction check. On the way back, we stopped in North Dakota for a meal check. Those are examples of sort of quasi-borderline, but I would absolutely defend the proposition that I have been to both Dakotas, just as an example. What is your definition, Christine, of what would count that you would feel comfortable defending with a straight face? If your body, your feet have touched the ground in that state, you have been to that state. You didn't ask us if we were, you know, sightseeing the states. You said, what states have you been to? I was in the airport in South Carolina, so I counted that. But you never left the airport? I did not. Yeah, I mean, technically you were physically there. Yeah. I'm just, yeah, I mean, I, I get it. Under that strict definition, I think it counts. I'm, I just, I'm not sure how much it counts. And here's the I thing. Did, Let's I, say you're, if you're driving through, if you're driving through the state, this is to Max's point, your feet aren't on the ground, but you are physically, like if there was a GPS tracker on where you were, and the authorities were trying to track you down, Christine, for whatever reason, could be one of any number, frankly, and they're like, well, where is she? Oh, she's in blank, because that's where you are geographically. Your feet aren't on the ground. Like, let's say you're driving through Ohio to get from the East Coast to Chicago or something. You're driving through Ohio. Your feet never touch the ground. You drive straight through the state. Have you been there? Yes. If your body was in that state, you've been there. And honestly, I would argue if you drove through the state, that would even be more of you being in the state than me at the airport. You're actually seeing more of the state. Because then you start getting into technicalities as well. Like, based on my definition, if you drive straight through Ohio and you never stop, you just say, you know, you see the sign, welcome to Ohio, Mike DeWine, governor, and then all of a sudden you're in Indiana where I am now and you never even stop, I don't really know if that should count. But let's say you pull off the highway for six minutes to get a Coke Zero, for example, and refuel. Now your feet have been on the ground. Does that all of a sudden count because you went to a completely nondescript, could-be-anywhere rest stop? I mean, technically, I guess the answer is yes, but in the spirit of this exercise, I'm not really sure. Like, Max, you, Max, under your rubric, would stopping for gas count or not? Yeah, I think so. Because you've been to the state. You've touched down. Your feet are on the ground walking around. Doesn't matter where you are. If you're getting a burger on the highway or stopping for the restroom, as long as your feet or body has physically touched the grounds of the state, I think you've been to that state. But if you only drove, so you're in the car the whole time, that does not count to you. No, you've been through the state. You haven't been but to your body the state. Was, no, no, I, you guys I, are I, so wrong. You're, I have another point I want to bring up. You know please. the uh, four points uh, between, was it Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, and Arizona? And Arizona. Does that mean you've been to 
four states in, you know, in that short amount of time? Or have you just gone to the one state that you're actually vacationing in? That's an interesting question. Because technically what you could do, I guess, is go to the exact point where the borders all meet and put your feet over that. And you would have little parts of your feet in each of the states. You'd be in four states at the same time. I think that probably counts. Like if you hopscotch and you're just like doing little jumps or even doing like a, <laughs> like a little dance. I'm actually literally doing the dance in my hotel room as I make this point. Uh, I, I feel like you have just been to four states. I mean, and certainly under your definition, Christine, that's four states, right? 100%. 100%. And if you are driving through a state and you see a sign that says, Welcome to Ohio, that sign is telling you you're in Ohio, which means you have been to that state. Okay, I mean, the that end. is... I win. That's a fairly compelling case. I will admit it. Now, there are people who are going to say they're purists. They'll have to, like, Wyatt, you were saying you have to spend a night in the state. That's your position, right? I mean, I think, or at least a full day, or I think a meal is even pushing. I think you need to be there. Like, you need to experience something in the state. Driving down the highway, I mean, I don't think that's enough. See, and a lot of people right now are being like, thank you, Quiet Wyatt. Thank you for speaking up. That's obviously <laughs> true. And you'd get some pretty passionate arguments about this because there'll be the, the technicality people like Christine who would say it all counts. And then kind of middle ground folks with Max being closer to Christine. I'm a little bit closer to Wyatt. But then Wyatt is the experiential argument saying some no-name highway experience just doesn't, doesn't cut it. And I'm open to that argument, but based on, I don't want to be a hypocrite, based on my own definition, I've been to 47, soon to be 48 states. And so I'm sticking with my definition. And by the way, if I adopted other definitions, like more capacious definitions, more generous definitions, it still wouldn't change the fact that I haven't been to Arkansas. I have driven through a tiny piece of West Virginia before, like cutting through. I am not counting that as having been to West Virginia. I have to go back and actually set foot in that state and do something before I count it. So West Virginia, under Christine's definition, I'm already at 48, waiting on 49. But based on my definition, which is the one that counts, for me at least, I'm at 47 and then hopefully 48 tomorrow, Idaho, heading your way. And we will broadcast first the show back here from Indiana tomorrow afternoon, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time. Looking forward to it. We will talk to you then. It's The Guy Benson Show. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.